Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everyone and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are changing things up quite a bit and we are presenting you a recording that we had previously done when Stephanie and I hosted a roundtable talk for the 28th National Evidence-Based Practice Conference back in April for the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And in this roundtable talk, we discuss DEI in evidence-based practice. And we interviewed four guests. Three of them have been on previous episodes, Storm O'Brink, Claire Phillips, and Lastasia Coleman. And then we had a new guest, Dr. Denise Martinez. And we're really excited to be able to share this with you because we had such a rich and full discussion or a roundtable talk with them. So tune in. We'd love to hear your thoughts and enjoy. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for attending our virtual talk show. Let's talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion and evidence-based practice. I'm Dr. Stephanie Edmonds, and I'm going to be one of your co-hosts for this panel. And hi, folks. I'm Dr. Nicole Lowe, the other co-host for today. Stephanie and I also co-host the Woman-Centered Health Podcast, and we've had the extreme pleasure of recording with most of our panelists today. So Dr. Martinez, watch out. You may have an invite coming to your inbox soon. But our podcast focuses on how to improve communication with patients in the area of sexual and reproductive health. But today we'll be focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion in all of healthcare. So we realize that diversity, equity, and inclusion, or also called DEI for short, has become a bit of a buzzword lately. And like a lot of buzzwords, they can kind of start to become meaningless. But we really want to stress that this concept is very important, particularly in healthcare. So we don't want it to become meaningless. So our panelists today are all experts on this topic, and we hope to give you all a good understanding of what DEI is why it is important, and how to practically make your EBP or other projects more inclusive and equitable. So we first want to thank all of our panelists for agreeing to speak with us today, and thank you all for attending. So now we will introduce our amazing panelists. Our first guest is Dr. Denise Martinez. She is a family medicine physician and the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Our second guest is Claire Phillips. She is a nurse and a patient care supervisor in the emergency department and is a DNP candidate at the University of Minnesota in health innovation and leadership. She's also the founder of the organization Nursing the System. Our third guest is Lastasia Coleman. She is a certified nurse midwife and clinical assistant professor in the Carver College of Medicine. Lastasia is also a PhD student at the University of Iowa College of Public Health and Health Management and Policy, and a co-founder of the Black Women's Maternal Health Collective. And our fourth guest is Storm O'Brank. They are the volunteer coordinator for the Rape Victim Advocacy Program and a full-spectrum doula. 
they are also the co-creator of the Queer Health Advocates Program and a co-facilitator of the Queer Art Healing Group. We're first going to ask each of our panelists a question to help orient us on what DEI is and what it looks like at a systems and an individual level. We'll then move on to a couple questions from the entire panel and finish our discussion by asking questions from the audience. And we'll start off with Dr. Martinez. So hi, Dr. Martinez. Thank you for joining us today. Could you start us off by explaining what DEI is and what that looks like in your role as the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion? Yes. Well, thank you so much and good morning. I'm I'm grateful to be here and um, happy that uh, I was asked to participate in this great conference. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, you're right, you know, now sort of just rolls off the tongue as, you know, words that just sort of belong together. But, you know, obviously they're super, super important concept, particularly in healthcare. The reason why we talk about diversity, so making sure that there are many different types of folks who are able to give care to patients equity. So making sure that the care that we give is equitable. So knowing that we don't always treat everybody equally, but we treat people equitably. And I can break that down in just a second. And inclusion that folks feel like the the culture truly includes everyone, that everybody has a voice at the table. And, you know, the reason why this is so important and the reason why that we talk about it, at least, you know, in the, the college of medicine level, and then also the hospital system level is because of health disparities, right? Um, Unfortunately, we know that health disparities are real. The data is clear about it, as many of you already know. And not and the health, health disparities don't just have to relate to what we call the social determinants of health, sort of the systems that uh, have created inequity you know, within our environments, whether that's educational systems, whether that's criminal justice systems, whether that's the healthcare system, et cetera. But also inequity happens in healthcare and health disparities happen because the health system itself is not equitable, uh, meaning that how we treat people from different backgrounds is not always the same, and or or not even the same, but not always even in a way that will improve health for for folks. So, for example, I come from a multiracial, multiethnic background, and my father is Afro Puerto Rican and um, has heart disease. And there's data that shows that if he has signs and symptoms of a heart attack, and we go to the emergency room. Room, because that he is a person of color, the chances of him being diagnosed correctly as having a heart attack or giving the life-saving treatment that he needs is significantly less. Um, and that's because of the bias, both implicitly and explicitly, that exists within our system, which is really hard to hear, right? Because I think many of us go into healthcare thinking, you know, we aren't going into this thinking that we're going to treat people differently. But the reality is, is that there's data and evidence that shows that we actually do. And sometimes, and oftentimes actually unconsciously as well. Or we don't listen to folks of different historically marginalized backgrounds quite as well, or we make quick decisions that um, can affect the care of folks. And so my job and my role looking at a systems approach is how do we educate our, our staff, our nurses, our providers, our basic 
basically everyone within the system about the health disparities exist and what are the ways that we, um, as the healthcare system, can specifically address those. And then my, my job also is to try to create an environment that we are lifting up the voices of folks that historically have not been at the table that absolutely deserve and need to be at the table to make sure that we are um, in the future uh, treating folks from all different backgrounds well. And so fortunately for medicine in particular, there are actually requirements for our accreditation of our faculty and residents and fellows and that sort of thing to do this kind of training, to to show and prove that we're actively recruiting. There's a lot of data that shows that the more diverse a system is with folks with lots of different identities, actually the, the care is better, outcomes are better. And so that, and you know, in, in healthcare, we are data-driven and that data is clear. And so our accreditation not only mandates it, but having these discussions, having uh, folks in uh, leadership positions to drive this forward is essential to the healthcare um, of, our, of our community. So that's some of the initial thoughts I have around this. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for your response, Dr. Martinez. That was a really good overview of DEI and the importance of it. So our next question is for Claire Phillips. Hi, Claire. As we previously mentioned, you are the founder of Nursing the System, where you teach nurses about systems thinking. What is systems thinking and why is it critical to DEI and healthcare? Hi, everybody. It's good to be here. I'm really excited to learn from the rest of the panelists. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, so I will, I'll start with explaining what we even mean by a system. So a system is an interconnected set of elements that work together towards a common purpose. And systems are all around us. They can be both human-made and nature-made. So a tree is a system. The human body is a system. We know about the cardiovascular system. The planet is a system. But at the same time, we have these social systems, systems that are designed by human beings that structure how we run our societies. One of these systems is our healthcare system. And so these structures not only design our societies, but also how we think about the world. So they're designing our our thoughts in a way. Some more examples of these social systems include the criminal justice system, the education system, governments, banks, really powerful entities in our world. And these systems have a stated purpose, which Dr. Martinez alluded to, you know, to help people or provide some kind of service. And then at the same time, they have actual purposes. So what they're actually doing in the world, how they're actually affecting people. And these two things, as we know, do not always align, which creates some trouble because we have what we think we're doing and what we're actually doing. And so systems thinking helps us see that gap. So in formal terms, systems thinking is a conceptual framework that helps us recognize the systems around us, see how they interconnect, how they influence us, and also examine what they're actually doing. Systems thinking is also a set of tools. So there's the theoretical and the practical, which is why I think it's such an awesome discipline. It's a set of tools for identifying how to change these systems so that they're actually effective and sustainable and are leaving no one behind. So my favorite metaphor for systems thinking is imagine you're in a boat on the ocean and you're looking at an iceberg. There's this shiny, glittery top of the iceberg. Uh, The things that are impossible to miss about systems would be this shiny, glittery bit. That would be, you know, the buildings, the hospitals, the personnel, the events taking place, what's going on. We can see that easily. We don't have to try. 
But below that, closer to the water level, we have trends and patterns. So the historical narrative, what's been happening? What's the data been showing for the last year or 10 years, et cetera? But then below the water level, what's not easily visible to us from our spot in the boat is the real mass of the iceberg. And so down in this dark water, we've got the system structure, and that includes power dynamics, policies, social pressures, cultural narratives. And this is the part of the iceberg that has real consequences. This is what is actually determining what's happening and what's been happening, our trends and patterns and events. And this is the part of the iceberg with the real consequences, because if we can't see this part of the iceberg, we don't know that the iceberg is so much bigger and more powerful than we think it is. And we've all heard about the Titanic. And so systems thinking is helping us to see the bottom part of this iceberg, the unspoken, the invisible part of systems that are really responsible for what we can see. And so systems thinking is critical to DEI work because one, we need to see what's really going on. We need to get real with ourselves about the reality of the situation if we want to do anything about it. And two, we need to understand that we're living in a world of systems that we as humans have designed and that we continue to perpetuate just by living in them without questioning them. And so in order to make this world and our healthcare system and our professions more diverse and equitable and inclusive, we need to take responsibility for that and we need to get to work. And we need to do it wisely with the understanding of what's below the water. So for example, systemic racism is not just an inevitability of our natural world. Our society was strategically built by human beings to protect the power of the builders. And when we look at this from a selfish perspective, it makes sense. It doesn't make it okay, but at least we can understand why it happened and why we're still living with those structures today. So it's not okay, but we know it's not a coincidence. It's not just how it is, and it is changeable. And there's hope in that, at least for me. So when we talk about equity and inclusion, a lot of what we're talking about is systems change. System change is not easy at all. (laughs) We're dealing with multifactorial systems with tons of different stakeholders and competing interests and dramatic power dynamics and unspoken cultural rules. But systems thinking gives us the tools to move past the overwhelm of, oh my God, this has been going on for thousands of years. What the hell are we going to do? And it helps us navigate the work of actually changing those systems. Thank you. Yes, it made my nerd soul very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Our third question is for Lastasia Coleman. So hi, Lastasia. Thanks so much for being with us today. Can you tell us what DEI looks like in your clinical practice as a certified nurse midwife? Sure. So DEI is, as everyone has said, you know, one of those things that can be overlooked in kind of thought of as an afterthought. And one of my goals within my clinical practice is to make sure that we're thinking about DEI in every aspect of our care. So it's not like, oh, well, we have this person, we should probably think about DEI. Because really, diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly inclusion piece, is it's everybody, right? And so there's something that everybody needs that we can meet their need on that if we just, you know, think about it a little bit more than just addressing what they're there for from a clinical perspective. Kind of day to day, I think we're trying to work on integrating more factors with social determinants of health into our care, where we're asking more of those questions about how are you getting around What's your family situation like? What are your barriers to getting in for care? And I think COVID has really made a lot of this very apparent uh, with 
people having like things like the visitor restrictions in place. So not being able to attend appointments if they're stay-at-home moms, they can't find childcare because they don't want to have anybody else in their home that might bring COVID into their home to their children. And so we've just, I know we've seen more of our patients not having the usual amount of prenatal visits and things like that, and just getting behind on their preventative care. And so overall, one of my biggest goals as part of the Black Women's Maternal Health Collective is just to improve outcomes uh, for Black birthing people here in the area that we serve in Iowa. And so through the collective, we also got a little layweighed by COVID, but where we were having kind of group meetings and bring people together prior to COVID. And, you know, that's really valuable to have that sense of community. And we've all gotten used to things on Zoom, but I think that personal in-person kind of touch is really important in the in these situations. But overall, we've gone more towards like a social ecological model of thinking about how we're going to function where we're addressing things for that population on an individual level, but also using our access and power that we all have as members of the collective to advocate for things like changes within hospital systems, changes on the policy level, both state and nationally. And so that's really, you know, a lot of the work that I do is outside of the actual clinical practice and with hopes that it eventually kind of trickles back into the clinical practice. I I think that we have to integrate thinking about DI, like I said, when I started into every aspect of our care. So thinking about, you know, how people are using my chart and things more, well, what are the barriers for our patients being able to have access to that? That's how we're sending results and notes and communicating and scheduling appointments and things like that. We have a lot of patients who have a preferred language other than English. So, you know, that's a whole another, you know, complication sometimes where you don't have enough time to spend with those patients in the standard appointment slot. Um, So thinking about how we can standardize things across our health system to make sure those patients are still getting the adequate amount of care and time with their providers and their appointments. And then other things like, you know, if someone has diabetes during pregnancy, what access do they have to food and what kind of food are they eating and not just kind of throwing a diet at them. Like, here's what you need to do and not without kind of informing ourselves about what they actually have access to for, for food and things. Another thing that kind of normal things we talk about in pregnancy exercise is another one that's been really challenging for people. And so people don't want to be out and about, they don't want to go to the gym, which is totally fair. They, you know, you just don't have the same access. So we've seen, I've seen pretty much every single person I see for an annual exam has been like, I've been so sedentary. I don't, (laughs) I don't know what to do. And like, it's going to come back around, but I think just giving people that grace and just kind of helping them think through with the resources they have, how can they optimize their health? We laugh because that's us. (laughs) Everybody. It's everybody. (laughs) And I I like what you said about grace. Yeah. We Mm -hmm. need to give everyone, including ourselves, grace. Well, thank you, Lostasia. Our next question is for Storm O'Brink. So you have many roles all centering around patient advocacy. What impact have you seen on patients when DEI is honored compared to when it is not honored? 
So I, I do a lot of um, advocacy with survivors of medical violence. So when I do see the values of DEI honored, I see a lot of folks who have more of a willingness to access healthcare, especially preventative healthcare. And so then because they're accessing preventative healthcare, that has a chain reaction of making their overall health better. Um, and they have less bad experiences with the healthcare system. And so then when they have less bad experiences, they don't talk to others in the community. And then, of course, like we have that collective trauma of folks, especially in like marginalized communities. Well, they'll talk about their bad healthcare experiences. And then folks who haven't yet had that bad experience are also afraid to receive healthcare because they know that that discrimination is waiting for them. When it is not honored, that that's more of where my area of expertise is. So oftentimes when I see medical violence happening, um, which for those of you who are listening and not as familiar with the concept, I'm talking about many uh, an umbrella term that encompasses many different things. So it could be care that somebody didn't consent to or times where somebody is seeking care and it's not given to them, especially um, life-saving care. Other times it's uh, sexualized violence that happens in the healthcare setting. Sometimes it's racialized violence, or it might be ableist. There might be other ways in which that that provider is enacting those forms of violence on that person. So when I'm talking about medical violence, we know that violence as a whole often stems from biased attitudes that we have. And then those biased attitudes graduate all the way up to the very tip top of the pyramid, which is violence itself. And so maybe it goes into um, ways that we inflict interpersonal violence, like uh, calling people names or um, refusing to hang out with certain groups of people because we don't see them as human as ourselves. And then it graduates into the systemic violence. So maybe it's economic and housing discrimination. And then all the way at the tip top is things like rape, murder, assault, and genocide of that ladder. But without the biased attitudes holding that bottom of the pyramid, the other things cannot exist. And so when I, I see those biased attitudes, which are ever present in healthcare, I see a lot of violence against individuals and it impacts their healthcare long-term if it doesn't kill them. So I see a lot of folks who are resistant to preventative healthcare, regular checkups, folks who do not feel safe accessing healthcare will intentionally withhold information from their healthcare providers because they are scared of what the consequences of giving that information might be or how they will be perceived or what will be restricted from them. If they'll be denied prescriptions to medications that are absolutely crucial to them, or if they won't be tested for certain diseases that run in their family. So it, it has like such a broad reach. And I, I think like some of the worst ways that I've seen it happen, including at University of Iowa hospitals and clinics is death. I have had clients who died on my caseload as the result of medical violence, which was motivated by biased attitudes racism, homophobia, transphobia, and ableism especially. And uh, that didn't have to happen. I think that if we make the choice and we turn back and we start putting in some of these more, I guess, systemic interventions, like looking at it, like from what y'all were saying earlier, which is look at it as a system, not as an interpersonal problem, not as individuals who are just making choices to be biased against other individuals. It's a system-wide problem. So we have to look at it that way. And if we look at it that way, then we can intervene and give people better health care. Yeah, I think that 
went a lot with what Claire was talking about too. And I think that obviously like some of this is really hard to hear, but it, it is what a lot of people unfortunately are experiencing. So thanks for sharing that with us. And I do want to do a quick plug. I know we've talked about maybe some new concepts like medical violence systems, thinking maternal mortality, shameless self-plug. Like we said, these folks are all on our podcast. So we have episodes on each of those specific topics. If you would like to even dive deeper into each of those. Okay. So next we're going to pose a couple questions and we invite all of our panelists to respond. First question, what are some strategies that healthcare staff and administrators can employ to ensure their improvement projects are inclusive and equitable? I can go ahead and start. I I would say um, one of the things that I think we miss out on as healthcare providers of really any discipline within our training is more information about historical factors that have led to where things are today and really learning about all these structures. Like, you know, we've talked a lot about pyramids and icebergs and things like that, but this it's a very applicable concept because we're in healthcare, we're really working at the very top of the pyramid, right? So we're not really scratching the surface on those structural things, the way that we operate currently. One is because it's not really part of a lot of our education as a standard. So what we learn, like what I've learned is all been post school, (laughs) you know, and like, just because it's my interest and I wanted to know more. So one of the things that I think we need to move towards is the structural competency framework, which essentially encourages healthcare providers to not only look at the problems within health itself, but also to think about the structural factors that can lead to poor health outcomes. And so thinking about laws and policies and social pressures and things like that, that exist that lead to the health outcomes we see, you know, there's in things like health economics, there's inputs and outputs, right? And so we have to think about the inputs because we're on the output side of things. Any other panelists want to chime in before we move on? I've got something. So when I I think about this question, I think about the way that I've seen things done in my own organization, too. So something that we do in every profession, doesn't matter what profession you're in, I feel like, is that we fail to involve people that work outside of our specific institution or profession. And because we're not involving folks in a variety of communities with backgrounds and expertises, we're not getting the best results that we could be. So there are things within our lens that maybe we will see that others don't and vice versa. And I think it's important to involve folks with those experiences so that you're getting the best outcomes that you can. Jane Lindsay Miller, who was our keynote prior to this session, she talked a lot about that as far as interprofessional disciplines and education. But I think I think what you said really ties in nicely, like that whole perspective changing. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that including patients in that interprofessional collaboration is really important as well. Thank you. Anyone else before we move on to the next question? Yeah, I just loved what everyone has said so far, just fully endorse. (laughs) I, you know, back to just systems thinking, I'm a shill for systems thinking real quick. I think that systems thinking needs to be integrated into all QI work. I feel like anyone who's working as, 
you know, number one, working in a health system. So let's get this curriculum into our educational systems before we even reach healthcare systems. But two, like, especially people at the leader level and above, like really need to be invested in systems thinking and that work because there are four main components and it's see the big picture, look under the surface, your perspective matters. And so does everyone else's. And so really just encouraging people to expand their focal depth, to see that context that Latasia was talking about and, and also like value diversity of perspectives, because we can't, as Storm was saying, we can't know it all unless we are involving other people in the conversation, because only then will we be able to actually zoom fully out to see all the, all the context that we need to, to make a strong decision. Well, we are fully endorsing what's happening here today too. (laughs) Okay. So our next question is what are some of your favorite resources that you would recommend for our audience to learn more about, to make healthcare more diverse, equitable, and inclusive? Go ahead. So I do think that I actually really agree with Professor Coleman that you it's it's really good to have a, a background and understanding. And I agree with Professor Coleman that sometimes that does not happen in our formal education, which is not good and, and certainly needs to change um, or it doesn't happen enough. And so, you know, nowadays there's so many good resources. I think understanding the history of healthcare is one of those things, though, that's incredibly important that, you know, we all sort of think that we've always been so altruistic. This is a bunch of really good-hearted people who are trying to do the right thing. But, you know, historically, these systems have been built to be so exclusive and and, in some really significant ways. And so I know that there's tons of podcasts. I know there's lots of educational opportunities to learn about historical inequities in healthcare. And I think that is a really good place to start for those who have less understanding of that. Dr. Martinez, do you have like a favorite book or particular resource? So I think that a lot of folks know, but even thinking about like medical research, a lot of folks know about um, Henry Adelax and the immortal life of Henry Adelax and those types of books, which I think are, are really good about giving sort of historical context to, to what uh, has been involved in medicine and, and, and in research. And I think one book we may be hitting on, we talk about Henry Adelax and research and medical is medical apartheid. That is quite a book. Claire, I feel like for sure you have a favorite resource because I know you've talked about this. I have a lot of favorite resources, um, but in terms of the the history of um, healthcare, I think the the sixteen nineteen podcast, which is just a fantastic podcast series, but they had one particular episode. I think it was like four or five that specifically dives into healthcare, and that that was like you can't not learn something when you listen to the episode. It's really fantastic. Yes, absolutely. 1619 podcast, but I was assuming you'd make a plug for Miss Danella Meadows. Yes. Happy to do that as well. If (laughs) if you'd like to learn more about systems thinking, I have many recommendations, but yeah, Danella Meadows book, Thinking in Systems is fantastic. I also have recently finished reading Systems Thinking for Social Change by David Peter Stroh. And that kind of breaks down exactly how systems thinking is, is used to lead to social change as the title would suggest. So also a really a good read if you're looking to get more into the theory. Lestasio or Storm, do you have any favorite resources? I've got one, but it's a particularly hard read. I can't actually remember the title, so I was kind of Googling it off in the corner. So um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a series of investigative reports on sexual abuse in the medical profession. 
Um, and some of the the stuff that they found, it would be shocking, I think, to a lot of the folks that are listening here, but it's not as shocking to folks who work with survivors of medical violence that this is happening. And I think it's it's really good at illustrating just how much of a difference having that power makes. So something that a lot of individuals don't realize or know is that the data shows that you have... Um, more of a chance of keeping your medical license if you have been convicted of sexually abusing a patient by your medical board than not keeping it. So your what I'm trying to say, I think that didn't make sense entirely. Your chances of keeping your license are much greater than losing it, regardless of if you've been convicted. And to get convicted in the first place, that that's a process and a half. And it's very unlikely because we have a lot of processes that don't believe survivors when that stuff is happening. And then even with the individuals that did lose their license, they managed to get it back a lot of the time too. And I think that that's like one of the biggest examples of the way that power functions within this profession. And so when you start thinking about power and how that influences it, and also knowing that um, marginalized groups of people are more likely to experience sexual violence, then you can start thinking about how to revolutionize the profession as a whole and maybe even give back some of that power to the patients that you serve. I had not heard of that. So I will look at that. Thank you. Yes. And I know like we mentioned medical apartheid too, as far as the history of Black people in this country and in other countries too, but it is also very difficult to listen or to read or listen to as well. Lestasia, do you have a favorite? My kind of working framework in general is from a reproductive justice angle. And so the Loretta Ross book that's called Reproductive Justice is probably one that I would recommend. So for those people who aren't familiar with reproductive justice, um, reproductive rights are typically just thought of as the right to have or to not have children, where reproductive justice takes that, the right to have or to not have children, also to birth in whatever way you choose and to raise your children in safe and sustainable communities. And there's also another element kind of coming in about sex and seeing sex is not just for reproduction, but also for pleasure. And so having the right to, to have that as well. And so I think that that book is really important because once you read it and think about it, you start to realize that reproductive justice issues are everywhere, especially when you're thinking about safe and sustainable communities like that goes into schools and welfare system and how people are able to move about in their communities, whether they're being harassed when they're going for a walk or they can't play with kids in their neighborhood, things like that. So it's, it really, you know, I feel like in healthcare, we're often, you know, we can make a lot of things like this is a safety issue. Right. And so like, I've gone to being like, this is a reproductive justice issue. (laughs) So like pretty much a lot, a lot of things that we, we talk about can um, link back to reproductive justice. Another shameless self-plug. We also have an episode on that that we did with Dr. Yeah, with Dr. <laughs> Tony Von Leonard, who is another founding person of who coined that term. And then yeah, we also have one from the medical perspective. So we actually have a couple on those if you want to learn more about reproductive justice, because it is important. 
Okay, so we would like to invite all of you in the audience to ask a question to our panelists. You can submit your questions in the Q&A panel. If you do not have a question, feel free to share any aha moments from the conference or this talk show in the chat. And while we are waiting for questions to come in, let's check in with our panelists one last time to ask if there is anything that we left out that needs to be addressed before we answer questions from the audience. Oh, well, we have some questions rolling in. So Stephanie, kick us off. So we kind of got into this a little bit, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it just if you have anything else to say. So what strategies can be used when developing research, EVP, or QI projects to ensure equality and diversity? I would say one thing that you can certainly do is to, from the beginning of your project, include the patient perspective or perspective of whatever group you're planning to involve in your study. So when we do research especially us being a public institution. I don't know if we think about it as much, but we're oftentimes using public dollars to to conduct our research. And we should think about research as like a good for the public, not just for our own benefit as researchers. And so in keeping that in mind, having our projects and what we're looking at informed by the people we're hoping to impact with whatever research we're doing from the beginning and not waiting until the end is something that I would recommend. And also paying people if you are asking for their expertise as a community member. Any other comments from our panel? Not yet. Okay. So the next question, what do you feel are the most important research priorities around DEI. Okay, I'm not a researcher. I'm going to say that right now. <laughs> but I want what I would like to see is I'd like to see more research around subjects related to power imbalances in healthcare and how that impacts patients, because I think that there's a wealth of information that we're going to find there. I think it's very valuable to have your perspective, Storm. So we appreciate that. It's always helpful to have that outside, the outside the perspective, non, yes, <laughs> the, the non researcher. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in DEI right now, we do a significant amount of training and education and, and discussion, and which is all excellent, but I don't know if those yet have been linked as much to outcomes. That the work that we're doing around education and trying to improve folks' understanding of the system structures biases, et cetera, that exist, that if, if, is it impacting the actual outcomes that we have? So that I think is some really, really important research that uh, we'll need to continue to get done. I can also add kind of on that same note as Dr. Martinez, I think that our research has been really focused more on the individual level and we need to focus it more on the systems level. And so like my area, when I finish my PhD, it will be in health services research. And a lot of that research is very just kind of like cut and dry, not really digging down into the issues, really staying right right up on that surface level. And so thinking about how to bring equity into that structural level evaluation is, is something that needs to be done. I think along that line, I, you know, it's hard to choose a research priority and say what the priority should be because all of these things are interconnected. So isolating one area to study is kind of against the point 
But I think that we need to be looking internally at our own professions as well and, and really interrogating like what barriers to entry are there for people of more diverse perspectives and backgrounds. Because like when you look at nursing, nursing look has a very sp- particular image um, that has endured for a very long time. And that's not by accident. And so I think this is starting to happen, but I think we really need to turn a, a self-critical eye inward and and look at what structures are keeping things around the status quo and how is that harming the, our profession and then ultimately the patients. Nicole and I as nurses are like, yeah, yes. <laughs> shaking our heads. The next question, and this comes back to Claire's iceberg, how can we address people who deny the existence of the iceberg at all? It's hard to deny the iceberg when you keep asking someone why, because you ask why a few times and you're really starting to get down into the structural level of what's going on. So if they have, if there's a systems problem you're looking at and their answer is to, you know, slap a band-aid solution on it or a silver bullet solution, keep asking them, okay, but why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And then it'll at least get them to realize that there may be something deeper going on. But flat out denial, I haven't encountered that, to be honest. I think people just aren't aware of like this kind of deep, well, I don't want to say deep thinking because I'm not like people don't think deeply, but it is kind of a different way to look at the world. And if it's not something that you've been exposed to, it's understandable that that would not be something you're comfortable with. But I think typically when you see people struggle with systems thinking, it's people who have lived a life where they haven't encountered systemic barriers very frequently. So someone who holds a lot of privilege. So someone like myself is going to move through the world unaware of a lot of these deeper structures, unless they're really intentional about finding them. Whereas someone who has had chronic chronic medical problems or is coming from a background that just looks very different from mine, they're going to have a much greater awareness of, of these deeper structures just because of their movement through society. Would love to hear from some other folks. I, you know, I think as far as this, I unfortunately have had folks who, particularly physicians who actually deny the existence of the iceberg. And my thoughts and feelings are obviously we when we educate, when we have discussions, which is again required within a lot of our own structures right now, that we use a lot of data and the data is clear. And even with data, people will sometimes deny. I would say it, the flat out denial is the minority. And, and my thoughts around that are at least the, that group, sometimes no matter what, there's just not much that you can do for some folks. And sometimes they can take a lot of air out of the, the room and that the, to, not always focus on the folks who are having those types of perspectives that uh, are clearly wrong and do not have evidence to support uh, what they think and they feel. And so it's hard because we want to obviously impact everyone and have an, uh, have everyone have an understanding of these issues. But I think there also has to be a recognition that there are there will be some that just will not come for the journey. Storm? Yeah, so I, I think that... And I know, like, I I probably said this at some point during the podcast y'all recorded me on, but I'm going to say it again because it's worth saying. You have to be willing to give people the gift of a difficult conversation. I know that part of, you know, I think especially with, like, white supremacy culture throughout just about, like, every profession in the United States, um, we become very conflict avoidant. And so we don't confront those folks before it gets to that point in the first place. 
And so then what we're saying is we're going to allow this to happen when we allow that to continue existing without confronting it and without giving that person the gift of a difficult conversation. I call it the gift of a difficult conversation because when you give someone that conversation, you're saying, I believe in you. I believe in your ability to change. I believe in your ability to do better. I value this relationship that we have. And I think that this relationship can grow more. You want to give people those difficult conversations. And it's especially like not just when they're believing that the iceberg doesn't exist, but when they're screwing up in every capacity um, because it helps strengthen every environment around you and your relationships with them. Yeah, I really like that perspective, (laughs) the gift. And I did see someone was asking about the podcast again. It's the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. And you can find, again, the gift of a difficult conversation on there as well. Any more questions? Are we about out of time? Yeah, we're about out of time. And I will say, like, someone had asked a question about psychological safety and how leaders can protect themselves when employees use that term to manipulate the environment. I'm not exactly sure what the question is, but I think kind of what Storm was getting at, like, I don't know if you have anything to add to that question, Storm, but that gift of a difficult conversation kind of goes in with that, like, I think psychological safety and, you know, being able to have those conversations too. And I, I too would also agree with, with Storm. And so I don't want to say that it's not that difficult conversations we had, because most of the time when we are talking about these types of things, it does in general make people uncomfortable. <laughs> and if, if one feels uncomfortable or doesn't feel safe, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not, that it, it that in, in general, that when we have these conversations that sometimes do feel uncomfortable when we're talking about power and privilege and systems that benefit some and don't benefit others, it doesn't always feel good, but it, it is unfortunately the, the it, you know, that doesn't feel good, but it is the right thing to do. And I can add, I think it's also important to not let those individuals who are denying impair the ability to move forward with change. And so it really has to be a top down. This is what we do. This is who we are. We're moving forward on this and you either come along or you're going to get left behind. Yeah. Very good point. All right. Well, we are out of time, but we could probably speak to you about this for several more hours. This is why we have a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So Nicole and I want to thank all of our awesome panelists again for this really great conversation um, and taking their time to educate us and share their expertise with us. We also like to thank our audience for participating in this session and asking great questions. Mm -hmm. And we hope that you all feel energized and equipped to make EVP or your other work more equitable and diverse. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Mm-hmm.